Welcome to Eccentric Earth, the podcast where I, your host Amy Walker, delve into stories from across history with a guest who has no idea what the topic's going to be. And joining me for this episode, it's Chris Haig. Hi. Welcome back, and it means something more to us this time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, let's just, let's just, okay, so first of all, it's been a while since I've been on the show, not for any particular reason, but taking a break. Um, and it also means, because this is the second time we've tried recording this, about 20 minutes ago... <laughs> we were doing the introductions, and then my laptop decided to go. Nah, I'm just, I'm just going to mess with you. And it just, I had to basically restart it. And <laughs> it, was, it was the whole thing, and we were in the middle of making a joke because the not the last time, but the time before that, I basically had a long gap, and that is because Amy turned my voice into a rap song. <laughs> um, I, I'm pretty sure you were the one who came up with that idea. Oh yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I know, I know. No, I never said. Amy came up with the idea of rap song. I said, "You turned my voice into a rap song," <laughs> and there was I, which I didn't even realize until I was recording with the thing with someone else. They went, "You realize there's a whole other twenty-five minute chunk cut out that's like a bonus episode," and I went, "Really?" And I just <laughs> looked it up, and I went, "Oh yeah, this is literally you and I not talking about anything historical. It was just us discussing like Scarlett Johansson, the problematic fave, and kind of all that kind of thing." So I was like, "Ah." Fair enough. Just no, when I mean, you think you're done with the show, there's something else out there. <laughs> I'm like, I was one episode away from retiring. I mean, to be fair, this is how your you... Creed show. <laughs> this is my Creed. This is my um, lethal weapon. I don't know. I haven't seen those films in years. It's one of those where it's like, you know, I was six months away from retirement. Oh, I was three days away from retirement and they dragged me back in and it's like, oh, okay, cool. Um, oh, no, does that mean I'm... Oh, well, I'm the crazy anti-Semite in that scenario then, aren't I? Oh, I did not think that analogy through. <laughs> you're not Mel Gibson, you're not Mel Gibson, you're not Mel Gibson, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. How ironic, though. Sorry, this is not how the show should start, but how ironic that the guy who played the character in the TV show turned out to be a bit of a psycho as well. Maybe it's just, you have to cast a psycho to play Riggs. <laughs> Maybe. And then they were just like, yeah, we're just, we're, we're just going to shoot him. <laughs> Let's just fucking kill him off. And I was like, oh, work, okay. Um, you, you do you. Um, yeah, but no, I'm intrigued for this uh, episode because it, it, Amy has very explicitly said there's nothing traumatic in it. Um, which when I, I didn't say that. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, it's, there, it's, there's it's, one it's sad moment. Like a well, there's a few sad moments. It's a kick-ass episode. That, that, that I'm fine with. said, oh, it ties into a lot of your first one, which was Elizabeth Fry, who is a badass. Um, yeah, but, yeah, I, I just got a lot of Fry vibes when I was researching this, and it's got me very excited to record this one. Yeah, no, no, I'm very excited, but I was describing it to my dad, and he went, so what is it recording tonight? I went, well, okay, so it's a history podcast, but it's like 
a surprise. And he went, what do you mean a surprise? <laughs> and I, went, I don't know what I'm going to be talking about. And he went, so your daily life? And I went, yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> So yeah, no, I'm I'm very intrigued, and I can't wait to add someone to like. Um, okay, this is just a shout out to <laughs> this, is a, this is a YouTube channel called Movie Bitches, which I'm obsessed with, um, and it's basically um, a gay guy and a straight woman uh, discuss films, and it's all very camp and very very funny, and just they love watching like shit movies and all that sort of thing. But they have, um, it, oh, I'm trying, I completely lost where I was talking about then. Oh no, that was it. Yeah, they have a concept known as "Can I swear? Uh, how 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 hard can I swear on this?" Um, remember that rap we were talking about? You said "cunt" like twenty times in oh, that, so well, it's all good. Word. Okay, <laughs> so they have a concept called "fabulous cunt island," and it's basically lots of um, kind of awesome badass women. Um, and they just all live on it. So, like, Judy Dench is on there. And, like, you know, all these various, like, oh, she's cool, she's on it, she's cool, she's on it, she's cool, she's on it, whatever. Um, like, I think Laverne Cox is on there. I think, like, just awesome, awesome women. And I was just thinking, like, Elizabeth Fry is on there in my head. <laughs> so I can't <laughs> wait to add someone to my mental <laughs> roster. Or, like, my wall of, my Leslie Nope-esque wall of inspiration. Well, now the pressure's on for me to not let you down. <laughs> I'll be. I'll be. I'll be intrigued. It might be someone I've heard of. I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> I hope I can. I can give you someone new. Yeah. Oh, listen. I am very much. You know. I'll for it. But at least we're avoiding the kind of the true crime stuff. Because yes. I'm. Because I'm such a weirdo for that. That I, I might have been like. Oh my god. Yes. Those four people died. <laughs> I know it. Well, so we, we had. A, we had a few dark ones in a row. Not just true <laughs> crime, but it was like there was the guy who invented lobotomy there was the beast of jersey and then your one with the velisca axe murders i need to give some people some light stuff for a while so I've been i mean some kick-ass is, inspirational people yeah i mean it's december as we're recording it so it's just like, maybe maybe you know season of goodwill no matter what your denomination just like i have no goodwill for anyone <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i i really want that to be like your instagram tag now Amy Walker, I have no goodwill for anyone. Even that, or you just do a clip of it, and that's just your opening now for the Christmas specials. It's just like, I have no goodwill for anyone. <laughs> you think this is a season of goodwill? Blah. <laughs> anyway, as, as happens when you get me on a show, we've gone off topic. <laughs> to be fair, we hadn't started the topic yet, so it's a good start. It's a good start. I know, <laughs> I know. I know, but I recorded those two fringe episodes with Andrew Brooker, who is uh, ace. We've not spent that much time together. It was supposed to be kind of uh, an hour thirty. We were talking for three hours because I just wouldn't shut oh, up. <laughs> right. So we'll try and avoid the three hours. So let's let's delve in so we can get started. <laughs> this podcast is part of Brit Pod Scene, an independent network of uniquely British podcasts that's always growing. Check out BritPodScene.com or BritPodScene on Twitter to find out more. Mary Anning was born on the 21st of May, 1799, in the British coastal town of Lyme Regis. Her father, Richard Anning, was a cabinet maker who supplemented his income by mining the coastal cliffside fossil beds near the town and selling, it to fi- selling his finds to tourists. He married Mary Moore on the 8th of August, 1793, and the young couple moved to Lyme 
as Lyme Regis was known at the time, and lived in a house built on the town's bridge. Some historians have reported that the family lived so near to the coast that storms swept along the cliffs and flooded the Annings' home, and that on one occasion they had to crawl out of an upstairs window to avoid being drowned. Richard and Mary had ten children together. The first was named Mary, who was born in 1794. They really weren't inventive with the names, were they? Like they'll, no. have, had, they'll, they'll have had seven daughters, all <laughs> called Mary, and it's just like Mary. Which one? Oh fuck, um, Mary, the, the eldest, second eldest, third. Eldest, you know, like I get it. <laughs> names maybe weren't that inventive in the whatever. I can't remember what you said. Eighteen ninety nine, seventeen eighty nine, seventeen ninety nine, yeah. seventeen ninety nine. You know, so they couldn't go on saying like you know. Ah, Courtney, Chelsea, and Cleo—they can't be going around like calling them that. But you know, I, 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 okay. This is just a personal thing. I don't like it when parents name children after themselves. I think mm. it's, I, me, but you know, if you've done that, that's absolutely fine. I just think it's a bit weird because it's almost a bit like you—you you are putting a lot of expectation and personality onto this person who is maybe two days old. <laughs> you know, it's a bit like because my dad's called Steve. If I'd been called Steve Junior, I'd have been like, "Fuck, I can't live up to this," <laughs> and nor do I particularly want to. My dad and I are very different people, and thank God for it. Um, not in a mean <laughs> way. We're just different. We're just yeah. Um, so yeah, I just okay. So there's a, a Molly, and but her real name's Mary, and she named her daughter Mary, and no doubt she'll name her other seventeen children Mary. Yeah. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. I'm going to have multiple Marys. <laughs> <laughs> a basket. It's like it's like that um, John Green thing. Like It's got like, that called an, an abundance of Catherines or something. It's just going to be like a household full of Marys. So Mary was followed by another girl who died soon after childbirth. Oh. A brother, Joseph, in 1796. And another brother in 1798 who died a few days later. See, this is why they named kids the same name, because that way you're guaranteed to have at least one of them oh with that name God. survive. <laughs> well, there so was that... Just... No, sorry, it's just there was that thing, which I, I don't know if it's true, but I read a thing saying they didn't use to name kids for the first couple of years. Yeah. Because the infant mortality rate was things. like... Yeah. So it was just like, oh, look, it's the baby. You're going to name it a thing? Well, we'll see if it works out. Yeah, you know. let's not get too attached to it yet and name it. <laughs> yeah, people are like, happy third birthday. What did you get? A name. Fabulous. <laughs> At least you get time then to actually kind of match it to the personality, you know. Yeah. You know, there's like... That's a good um, point. <laughs> yeah, well, there's, there's been a bit of a trend of, like, girls being called, for example, Lola, which is a very nice name, but it comes from the Spanish Dolores, which means uh, sorrow or misery. And I'm like, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'm someone who just likes learning like the meanings of stuff, so I'm like, cool, maybe don't call it. Do you know what we named you? Fucking abject misery. <laughs> have have fun have fun with that kid, you know. Mind you, then this kind of the risk being like um the seven dwarves, which I've always wondered, are they their real names or they're just their nicknames? Like were they born <laughs> happy, sleepy, grumpy, dopey, bashful old doc? Or and I'm really impressed I managed to remember that many. Um, or did they, were they nicknames? Or were they named that? It's like, right, you've got to grow into this personality now. It's a bit of a nature-nurture thing. Yeah. 
Oh, were, were they naturally like that, or were they shaped by their names? Well, exactly. You know, <laughs> is it something where it's just like, oh yes, we named him Happy because he had a happy temperament, or Grumpy the Dessert, or that sort of thing, or are there other nicknames? Or is it a case of what my dad calls me missing the entire point and that he's a kid? <laughs> <laughs> Which, to be honest, dear listener, is not beyond the realm of possibility. In December 1798, Mary, who was then four years old, died after her clothes caught fire while she was adding wood to the fire. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah, this is a bit awful. (laughs) The incident was reported in the Bath Chronicle on the 27th of December and said, A child, four years of age, of Mr. R. Anning, a cabinet maker of lime, was left by the mother for about five minutes in a room where there was some shavings. The girl's clothes caught fire and she was so dreadfully burnt as to cause her death. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that was a bit bad. Fair enough. Okay. I mean, it's horrible, but okay. So when another daughter was born five months later, she was named Mary after her dead sister. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Nope. And this is the Mary of our story. Oh, okay. It's almost like a it's it's like a trick, really. It's like in Smallville where they had oh, it's Jimmy Olsen, and then they killed him, and they went oh no, he's named after his cousin, <laughs> Jimmy Olsen, and you're just like oh okay. Mind you, I definitely I definitely read a book about this, and the girl was called it's not Rebecca Daphne de Barrier Rebecca, but the girl was called Rebecca after her. Because she was adopted, and she was named after the parent's biological daughter who died in a drowning accident. And I remember thinking, okay. "This is this is fucked up." Yeah. And they like made her wear the clothes, and it's all a bit, you know, a bit vertigo, and it was just, it was weird. It was a wild ride of a book. But yeah, no, just that whole thing. It's just like, ha, ah, we're gonna, ni-, you know, not even name you after like, like a well, it is a dead relative, I guess. But yeah, we're gonna name you after your dead sister. Right. Okay. Yeah, you're you're the rebound child. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it kind of puts the naming a child after the parent into perspective, really, doesn't it? It's like, oh well, at least we're naming after someone living. No, nope, we're going to name you after, <laughs> after your own dead sibling. Okay. Yeah. No. I, yeah. <laughs> More children were born after Mary, but none of them survived beyond a few years of age, and only Mary and Joseph lived to adulthood. So out of the ten children, mm-hmm. two survived. Oh, no. Uh, strangely enough, during this sort of period, around the 19th century, um, around half of the children born in Britain died before the age of five. Oh, God. So this family was unusually high for it being 80%, but yeah, it was like 50-50 whether or not your kid was going to make it, really. Lovely. Yeah. Good old olden days. It was horrible. Yeah. Oh, we really like romanticising the past, really? (laughs) Do you like thinking about cholera and death? Lovely. On the 19th of August, 1800, she was being held by a neighbour, Elizabeth Haskins, who was standing with two other women under an elm tree, watching an equestrian show being put on by a travelling company of horsemen. With little warning, lightning hit the tree they were standing under and killed all three women. Oh my god. 
Onlookers rushed the baby Mary home, where she was revived in a bath of hot water. A local doctor declared her survival miraculous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no I don't know why I'm laughing. Three women died. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, ha ha ha, what the fuck? Well, it's, it's 200 years later. It's like, are we allowed to joke about it yet? Just like, too soon, too soon. Um, I just. No, that's crazy, though. <laughs> that is mad. I mean, I suppose maybe because she was short, short, or she wasn't. I. Oh my god, that's weird. Her family said that she had been a sickly baby before the event, but afterwards she seemed to blossom. So the lightning made her stronger. <laughs> <laughs> is it, are you? Is this the origin of a superhero? Is this the origin of a superhero, Amy? This is the real life Flash, yes. <laughs> I'll be honest, the minute you said like lightning made her stronger, not only did Britney Spears' song Stronger come into my head, I've got the vision of her just like rising like um that show Black Lightning, <laughs> but I'm imagining this girl is white for some reason. And just like, ah, I have the power of electricity. <gasps> she's storm. That would make this cool this story quite cool, but I think she's cooler without the powers because she's no. she does some badass things but well, unfortunately no no powers none of my historical figures ever get super <laughs> i just want one thing where they were like just so you know marilyn monroe could talk to the dead and i'm like oh you know audrey hepburn could could you know bring people back from the dead and i'm like of course she could mary seacombe could like control the tides or something I know. Can you tell that I have given a little bit too much thought into this? Yeah, it's just I think I've stumbled across something a bit disturbing here. It's not. It's it's very wholesome. How dare you? It's which historical <laughs> figure would match which superhero power and why? Um, but yeah, so she survived, stuck in a hot bath, and apparently the lightning made her. I don't know better. For years, members of the local community would claim that her curiosity, intelligence, and lively personality was a result of being struck by lightning. Mary's education was extremely limited, however she was able to attend Sunday school where she learnt to read and write. By the late 18th century, Lyme Regis had become a popular seaside resort, especially after 1792 when the outbreak of the French Revolutionary Wars made travel to the European mainland dangerous for the English gentry. This increased numbers of wealthy and middle-class tourists holidaying there instead. Even before Mary's time, locals supplemented their income by selling what were called curios to visitors. These were fossils with, with colourful names such as snake stones, devil's fingers and vertebraries. They would be sometimes attributed medical and mystical properties. These were in fact fossils, which included ammonites, belemnites and vertebrae. Ah. I didn't realise this until uh, researching this. Lyme Regis is the Jurassic Coast. No. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So lots of fossils are along there. Yeah. Fossil collecting was very popular in the late 18th and early 19th centuries as a hobby, but gradually transformed into a science as the importance of fossils to geology and biology became known. The source of most of the fossils in England were the coastal cliffs around Lyme Regis which were part of a geological formation known as the Blue Lias. This consists of alternating layers of limestone and shale laid down as sediment on a shallow seabed early in the Jurassic period, around 210 to 195 million years ago. 
and to this day remains one of the richest fossil locations in Britain. However, the cliffs could be dangerously unstable, especially in winter when rain caused landslides, and it was during these winter months that collectors were drawn to the cliffs because the landslides often exposed new fossils. Richard Anning often took Mary and Joseph on fossil hunting expeditions to make more money for the family, and they offered their discoveries for sale to tourists on a table outside their home. This was a difficult time for the England's poor. The French Revolutionary Wars and the Napoleonic Wars that followed caused food shortages. The price of wheat almost tripled between 1792 and 1812, but wages for the working class remained almost unchanged. In Dorset, the rising price of bread caused political unrest and even riots. And at one point, Richard Anning was involved in organising a protest against food shortages. In addition to this, the family's status as religious dissenters for not following the Church of England attracted discrimination. Because they were classed as dissenters, they were not allowed into universities or the army, and were excluded by law from several professions. Her father had been suffering from tuberculosis and injuries he suffered from a cliff fall when he died in November 1810, aged just 44. Oh my god. Well, yeah. Not that age. I was going to say, I was trying to work out what the, kind of the average. <laughs> All right. Uh, fine, I guess. Um, I can have a look what the average age was then. Yeah, ish. Jesus. How? Uh, a- around 40. That's for your, your your average working class poor person. Yeah. It's like 35 to 45. So he did all right. <laughs> yeah, he did, you know. Better than, <laughs> better than most. Better than eight of his kids. Oh. Too soon. <laughs> Do you know what I was thinking? 200 years, it's not too soon. And yet somehow, Amy, that man yeah. too soon. Like, hey, do you know you did better than by your fucking kids? Yeah. <laughs> It's I'll fine. Here, that here, yeah. in the playback. If it's if it seems too much, I'll just cut this whole part out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then I'll put it on Twitter and be like, "Do you know what? <laughs> Amy had a really tasteless child murder joke. It's like it no, wasn't murder. It was a murder. It was just death. <laughs> they got murdered by the times. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's just like yeah, you know." Mary one got murdered by the fact that she just didn't know that flames make stuff go up. So, tell you what, if they'd had all been like Mary two, you know that kid was struck by lightning. She was the shit. <gasps> I know she was like the the Daenerys <laughs> of the family. <laughs> she like had one thing, all of a sudden became stronger. She's like, I got struck by lightning. I didn't go on fire. Three grown women got killed by it. Me, I'm strong as fuck. She's like Kanye West. She's like me. I'm strong. I'm strong as hell, and everyone else is just like you are. Just lucky. You win. I wonder if that's what made her like stronger, not like all jokes aside. I wonder if it was like the attention, and she was Probably. like, you know, she, I mean, let, let's be right. She was one of however many whatever pecking order she was in. So that might have kind of given her the impetus to be like, okay, all right, I've got a bit something to live up to now. <laughs> Either that, or it completely we rewired her brain or something. But who knows. <laughs> After Richard's death, the family was left with significant debt and no savings, and it forced them to apply for parish relief. However, the family continued collecting and selling fossils together and set up a table of curiosities near a coach stop at the local inn. Before the father's death, her parents had been astute collectors together and had sold significant fossil finds. Their first well-known find was in 1811, when Mary was just 12. 
Joseph dug up a four-foot ichthyosaur skull, and a few months later, Mary found the rest of the skeleton. Henry Host Henley of Sandringham House in Norfolk paid the family about £23 for it, the equivalent of £1,070 today. He went on to sell this to William Bullock, a well-known collector who displayed it in London. Whilst in London, the fossil generated considerable interest, mainly because at the time most people in England still believed in the biblical account of creation, which implied that the Earth was only a few thousand years old. Ah. It's like, logically I know that, but it's just weird of being like, oh wow, they didn't know about dinosaurs. Yeah, they were completely, you know, it was just not a thing they'd consider. There wouldn't be dinosaurs, because why would God let things go extinct? He doesn't make flawed creatures. Of course they'd survive. There's no such thing as dinosaurs. The Earth's 4,000 years old. You know, it was just fact to them. Yeah. Oh. I mean, don't... 200 years ago. You'd think they'd have figured it out by then, but it's shocking. (laughs) Well, I mean, we we had the Renaissance a bit, but... Eh. I mean, don't get me wrong. If you're listening to this and you're a creationist, then... First of all, did you pick the wrong podcast? Uh, <laughs> sorry, that's mean. That's mean. I'm sure there's someone out there who's a creationist. Um, but, you know, that's fine. That's a thousand percent your right to belief. Just don't start yelling at people in the street and, you know, saying, <laughs> it needs to be taught in schools. It's like, mm, no, they can read about creationism on a pamphlet and they'll be fine. Is it is it bad of me that in my shop, if we ever get donated, like, Bibles... I put them in the fiction section on the bookshelf. I mean, oh. Am I just being an arsehole or it, I don't know. It, 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 it depends. <laughs> it depends. <laughs> it depends. Are you do- if you're doing it as like some kind of atheist agnostic kind of, ah, fuck you, then, you know. Fine, do it. As long as you're not actually doing it, like I said, you know what, I'm just going to do it to particularly annoy this one <laughs> sub subgroup of people, in which case it's like, mm, maybe a bit. But listen, you know, if you believe the Bible is literally the word of God, which is your right, I think you maybe need some perspective, given that God is an ephemeral being and therefore can't use a pen. <laughs> um, some of them genuinely do. I watched this Again, tangent, but I watched a thing years ago, which was a woman who said, no, he literally wrote the Bible. He came down from heaven and physically wrote it. And I went, did he? (laughs) Because they're the same kind of people who, um, in paintings, they insist that Jesus was white. From the Middle East. From the Middle East. A white man in the Middle East. yeah, Yeah, he and every other good character in the Bible, somehow they are the palest of pale being Middle Eastern Jews. And, of course, Middle Eastern Jews of 2,000 years ago, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John were perfectly normal names for that part of the world. (laughs) Absolutely. And the fact that he wrote it in English, yeah, you know, I think he's absolutely incredible. So, you know, power to him, the divine. Um, My subscribers are going down right now, aren't they? (laughs) (laughs) No, you know, like, it's... Believe what you're going to believe. You know, if you have faith, that's fantastic. If you don't, that's okay as well. Um, but like, yeah, have faith, but kind of accept that part of your faith is this book was written by people, so some of it is probably made up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, take it with a pinch of salt. Take it with a pinch of salt, and take it in the context of 
it was, you know, a percentage of it might be true. However big the percentage is depends on your thing. But mm-hmm. it was written by people who lived in their own context and everything and who, like people writing books, probably used analogies and kind of allegories and all that sort of thing. So maybe don't take it as a literal translation um, and also realize that there's more important things in the world to be worrying about and there's stuff that we all share and have commonality with each other regardless of whether or not you have faith and what faith that is or if you don't have faith at all. It's all absolutely fine. Impeach Trump. Um <laughs> I know I say that once every episode on any show. I mean, no, I'm just like, well, the point of it. The point of it is, first of all, <laughs> impeach Trump. Secondly, and then I get to the actual point because eventually, if I speak it into the universe, it's going to happen. Either that, or he's going to. I don't know. No, because no, I made a joke about him getting assassinated, and then I just thought I generally had to ask them to edit it out in case someone listened to it. I was like, I was like, are you planning to kill Trump? And I'm like, no. I mean, he's awful, but like. You'd, well, you'd be on a watch list. <laughs> well, that, and I'm also a crap shot. <laughs> it's not the fact that it's like, what is it? It's also the logistics of it. I'm awful. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, even, even, if, even if the intent were there, and I can't kill anyone, even if the intent were there, the body has bad eyesight. <laughs> and... <laughs> Having learned this from the odd time that I've used an air rifle in, like, safe conditions and everything, don't worry. Um, I'm just crap. (laughs) So the chance of me pulling off a political assassination is like, you know, Donald Trump having a considerate word to say about anyone. It's all good. After being on display in London for a while, the fossil was sold again, this time for £45 and 5 shillings, an auction which is about the equivalent of £2,100. The fossil was listed as crocodile in fossil form in the British Museum. So even the museums were still... So like, it's not a dinosaur. It's it's something we're familiar with. It's going to have to be a crocodile. Uh, I mean, technically, I guess. Cro- crocodiles are technically dinosaurs. Same with, like, birds. So, yeah. I mean, birds are technically dinosaurs. So Yeah. Just yeah. go watch chickens run around a garden. It's exactly like the raptors in Jurassic Park. I mean, I, I mean, I was thinking more, kind of. Um, oh my god, I can't think of a single flying dinosaur though. <laughs> my my mum is genuinely she loves the Jurassic Park world films, um, and so she has them on at least like twice a month, and yet I can't remember <laughs> what ter- pterodon is that one. Mm-hmm. Pterodactyl, that's it. You know, looking at them and seeing how they're effectively kind of a uh, a precursor to modern kind of avids and all that sort of thing. So it's like, oh, cool. Um, but yeah, I can easily see why in like turn of the century, 19th century England, they were like, cool, this is this is a lizard. Yeah. This is no, a crocodile. Like, rather than being like, hi, this is something that we have no idea what the fuck it is. <laughs> You know, I don't know why they couldn't reckon, reconcile that with the church. If mind you, I suppose it's it's Genesis, isn't it? It's not like and then God created the things that were much bigger than humans, but then hmm. which all mysteriously died around about the same time. Well, one one theory that they would put across was that uh, all, all these fossilized animals that they'd never seen before were around at the start of the Bible and lived alongside man, but were killed in the flood with Noah. 
they were the animals that didn't get to go on the ark, which is why oh, they were I'm, all wiped I'm out. So, I'm sad now. <laughs> you know why? Have you seen Jurassic, the new Jurassic World? No. No. Okay. There's a moment. No in spoilers. It. Okay. No. 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 It's um. There's a moment in it which is so sad. It's weird. I wasn't expecting this. It was so sad that I almost cried in the cinema. <laughs> I genuinely nearly, I was like, I was, I, I don't know what I was, I was close. I don't actually cry a lot, but I come near quite a lot. And that got me. And then I have just this like bunch of sad dinosaurs holding hands, like, you know, that bit in, the t- in Titanic. But there's like the old couple on the bed as the wall. <laughs> just like a couple of dinosaurs going like, it's all right. <laughs> Oh, God. Oh, I'm a mess. (laughs) It's Christmas. It it stirs up emotions in everyone. (sighs) Right. So, uh, family business, selling stuff. Cool. Mary's mother initially ran the business after Richard's death, but it's unclear how much of the actual fossil collecting she did. As late as 1821, she wrote to the British Museum to request payment for a specimen. Joseph's time was increasingly taken up by his apprenticeship to an upholsterer, but he remained active in the fossil business until at least 1825. By that time, Mary had assumed the leading role in the business. Oh, so she's like, uh, I suppose a bit like a female Alan Grant, or like, yeah, uh, she's, uh, but he didn't sell it. Fossil hunter. Yeah, like Alan Grant meets Lara Croft, but in the 1800s. Yeah. But- at the time, you know, museums would send people out to look for stuff, but a lot of them, they just bought stuff. Yeah. So it was like, I guess, uh, like a contractor, if she would go and sell them to museums or private collectors. Oh, like the baddies in the beginning of the third Indiana Jones film. <laughs> yes. Yeah, where they're trying to, like, <laughs> like the, the big uh, cross, and they're like, this belongs to, you know, our highest thing. And then young Indy's like, it belongs to the museum. Yes. Mary Anning is the guy who gives Indy his hat. You figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Sorry, I, I watch a lot of ancient aliens. And so somehow I'm like, mm, I can believe that. <laughs> <sighs> Lieutenant Colonel Thomas James Birch, a wealthy collector from Lincolnshire, was one of the family's regular customers, and he bought several specimens from them. In 1820, he became disturbed by the family's poverty. Having made no major discoveries for a year, they were at the point of having to sell their furniture in order to pay rent. Birch made the decision to auction the fossils he'd bought from them and donate the money to the family. He wrote to the paleontologist Gideon Mantle to say that the sale was for the benefit of the poor woman and her son and daughter at Lyme, who have in truth found almost all the fine things which have been submitted to scientific investigation. I may never again possess what I am about to part with, yet in doing it I shall have the satisfaction of knowing that the money will be well applied. The auction was held in London in May 1820 and raised £400 for the family, the equivalent of 18.6,000. Wow. That's not bad. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. However, historical records do not show how much of this was given to the Annings, but it does seem to place the family on a steadier financial footing, and they were able to survive financially for a short while. Mary continued to support herself selling fossils. 
Her primary stock in trade consisted of invertebrate fossils such as ammonites and belemnite fossils. Sorry, belemnite shells, which were common in the area and sold for a shoot for a few shillings. Vertebrate fossils such as ichthyosaur skeletons sold for more, but were much rarer. Collecting the fossils was dangerous winter work, and in an 1823 article in the Bristol Mirror, it wrote about her saying, This persevering female has for years gone daily in search of fossil remains of importance at every tide, for many mile under the hanging cliffs at Lyme, whose fallen masses are her immediate object, as they alone contain these valuable relics of a former world, which must be snatched at the moment of their fall, at the continual risk of being crushed by the half-suspended fragments where they leave behind, or be left to be destroyed by the returning tide. To her exertions we owe nearly all the fine specimens of ichthyosaur of the great collections. Aww. I mean, that's nice. It's also kind of patronising, but it's nice. Yeah, it's... She's getting a credit, at least. It's like, yeah, she's the one finding them. It's matter of fact, this persevering female, it's almost a bit like, well, this little lady done found some dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, oh, oh okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's nice. I'd rather do, say that than just like, oh, clearly it was a guy who did it. Like that whole thing about, you know, Bramwell Bronte, when he's like, oh, he clearly wrote all of his sister's book. And you're just like, get in the bin. Get in the bin with that opinion. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Unfortunately, this this next part isn't as nice. This is one of the, oh no, parts of the story. But it will get better. Okay. (laughs) In October 1833, Mary barely avoided being killed by a landslide whilst collecting fossils. While she survived the incident... Her black and white terrier, called Trey, which was her constant companion, was killed. Oh no! Yeah, I'm sorry, we've got a doggy death. Oh, God damn it, Amy. I'm sorry. I didn't do this, it. <laughs> I, I don't know who I have to report you to. <laughs> but bring me, like, you know, you can't do who does the dog die for podcasts. <laughs> historical things would be like, I'm sorry. I know the dog, if he had survived, would have been long dead by now, but that's not the point. (laughs) Oh, his name was Trey. Like like the tree you use. (laughs) Oh, 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 well. Mary wrote to a friend, Charlotte Murchison, in November that year to say, Perhaps you will laugh when I say the death of my old faithful dog has quite upset me. The cliff that fell upon him and killed him in a moment before my eyes and close to my feet. It was but a moment between me and the same fate. Oh. So it literally landed right next to her. Oh. So very lucky escape and poor oh, Trey. I, poor Trey. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm glad she survived, but it's like, why did the dog have to die? <laughs> oh, it's like there's a there's a. Uh, a film I watched ages ago, and it's I think it's called Tracks, and Mia mm. uh, Vaskowska's in it, <clears throat> and Adam Driver's in it. It's basically about a true story of a woman who she was unemployed and a bit listless, and so she decided to, to trek from one end of Australia to the other, and she has a dog with her, and the dog makes it three quarters of the way through the film um, before it uh, gets attacked and gets rabies, and so she has to put it down. And I swear to God. Oh, that, that that was that was when I cried because the rest of the film is great. It's really interesting. It's real. It's you know fantastic. And I'm like, if you'd have just like lied to me, 
and not killed the dog. Yeah. I'd have been threatened. Because she ends up taking camels. She uses camels to travel over. So the camel... Is it camels? No. That's camels, horses, something. She ends up taking some up to like travel with. I swear it's a camel, but who knows? <laughs> it's, been, it's been four years since I've seen this film. A lot's happened. It's um, either a camel or a dodgy horse. So. <laughs> see, but it, it's, it, it's, a, it's a horse that needs to see a chiropractor. Um, <laughs> but no, and it just it got me then. I was like, oh, Trey. I can't, I can't, no, I can't, don't worry, I, it'll get better from there. I know, but there's I, no more doggy death. I know, but I know, but I can't watch like the super there. I'm I'm more upset about the dog dying than I am the, the rest of those children. How fucked up is that? I'm more like listen, I'm more upset about <laughs> the dog dying than the fact that you described how a four year old went up in flames. <laughs> I'm, I'm more upset that the dog died in like a moment, so instantly, than the fact that. I've, I've, <laughs> the child went up like like a like kindling. Oh, oh dear. Oh, I want to be my mother. <laughs> <laughs> it's mine. He's asleep. He's mine. <laughs> Just don't take him to any cliffs. Uh, no, that's a that's a that's a fair certainty now. <laughs> if there ever was one, like I'm just gonna keep him away from old cliff stuff. As Mary continued to make important finds, her reputation grew. On the 10th of December, 1823, she found the first complete plesiosaur, and in 1828, the first British example of a pterosaur, which was called a flying dragon when displayed at the British Museum. Fair enough. Okay. Flying yep. dragon. Bring it. Now, uh, I'm going to have a great time trying to pronounce this. These discoveries were followed by a Squalorager fish in 1829. Squalorager? Squ- spe- uh, spell it? S Q U A L O R A J A. Squalorager. Like, you know, like it's, it's, it's not easy, is it? <laughs> it's squalor and then like azure. Squalorager. Squalorager? Ah, we'll roll with it. It'll be fine. Yeah. They're all dead. They're all the, dead uh... now. They're not going to take offence. <laughs> this is where the one paleontologist listener I've got has just thrown <laughs> his phone at the wall. <laughs> that one paleontologist is going to just put reviews on the thing. Clearly, it's pronounced. Soja should have done the research. It's like, oh, calm down. <laughs> There's not going to be like a squalorager, you know, rights group or anything. They're fucking dead. <laughs> Despite her limited education, she read as much of the scientific literature at the time that she could, and often hand-copied papers borrowed from others. Paleontologist Christopher McGowan examined a copy she made of an 1824 paper on marine reptile fossils and noted that the copy included several pages of her detailed technical illustrations that he said was hard-pressed to tell apart from the original. Very talented woman. Damn straight. Mary also dissected modern animals, including both fish and cuttlefish, to gain a better understanding of the anatomy of some of the fossils which she was working with. Lady Harriet Sylvester, the widow of the former recorder of the City of London, visited Lyme in 1824 and described Mary in her diary. The extraordinary thing in this young woman is that she has made herself so thoroughly acquainted with the science that the moment she finds any bones, she knows to what tribe they belong. She fixes the bones to a frame with cement and then makes drawings and has them engraved. It is certainly a wonderful instance of divine favour that this poor, ignorant girl should be so blessed, 
for by reading and application she has, a, she has arrived to that degree of knowledge as to be in the habit of writing and talking with professors and other clever men on the subject, and they all acknowledge that she understands more of the science than anyone else in this kingdom. Ah, oh, that's nice. Yeah, so she's basically saying, yeah, this, this girl knows more than the professors and the gentlemen scholars. and That's awesome. Yeah, I like mm. that. It's like, listen, she knows her shit. Basically, she knows yeah, her shit just, better than anyone shit. else in the country. <laughs> so, like, don't be a dick. Even though I have never heard of her before. So. Because that's the thing at this time as well. There weren't paleontologists. It, no, no. This I guess was not. gentleman collectors. It was people who did science as a hobby. So that's their hobby. But this is her life. This is her living. So she knows so much more than them. Mm. Yeah. Oh, wow. In 1826, at the age of 27, Mary managed to save enough money to purchase a home with a glass storefront window for her shop, which she named Annings Fossil Depot. The business had become important enough that the move was covered in the local paper, which noticed that the shop had a fine ichthyosaur skeleton on display. Many geologists and fossil collectors from Europe and America visited Mary and Lyme, including the geologist George William Theverson... Oh, good God. <laughs> I started that word without reading the whole thing. Theverstoner. Sorry, that was, just, that was just funny. It was like, Featherson, where the fuck is this going? <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. I'm. I'm just going to send you his name in the Skype chat so you can okay. see why I started it and then went. Oh, good God, Feverstoner, I think it's pronounced. Uh, yeah, Feverstoner or Feverston Hay or yeah. I started as like, oh yeah, Fever. Oh, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> like Featherston, <laughs> or you know, hey, and it's just like nap. Nah, gonna throw them together. Just <laughs> so George, we'll call him. Uh, purchased fossils from her for the newly opened New York Lyceum of Natural History, which I believe, I'm going to check this, actually became the Museum of Natural History. Where is my Internet Explorer? Oh, I closed it. That's why I can't search for it. <laughs> I've, I've, been, I've been to the Natural History Museum in New York. It is ace. Oh, you no, can... this, the Lyceum actually became the New York Academy of Sciences. Ooh. So she supplied them with the fossils. That is, which is awesome. Yeah, oh. I told you this woman was going to be kick-ass. I yeah, I'm <laughs> I'm I'm enjoying her. That sounds weird to say. I'm <laughs> I'm enjoying learning about her. I'm like, yeah, this is cool. King Frederick Augustus II of Saxony visited her shop in 1844 and purchased an ichthyosaur skeleton for his extensive natural history collection. The king's physician and aide, Carl Gustav Carus, wrote in his journal, We had alighted from the carriage and were proceeding on foot when we fell in with a shop in which the most remarkable petrifications and fossil remains. The head of an ichthyosaur, beautiful ammonites, etc. were exhibited in the window. We entered and found the small shop and adjoining chamber completely filled with fossil productions of the coast. I found in the shop a large slab of blackish clay in which a perfect ichthyosaur of at least six feet was embedded. This specimen would have been a great acquisition for many of the cabinets of natural history on the continent, and I considered the price demanded, £15 sterling, as very moderate. So now she's selling it to kings as well. <laughs> I mean, damn, okay. 
Karis asked Anin to write her name and address in his pocketbook for further reference, and when she handed it back to him, she told him, I'm well known throughout the whole of Europe. <laughs> so, tooting her own horn now. Oh! Kind of, it's a bit big-headed, but I like it. <laughs> well, you know, she puts the work in, and it is a little braggy, but who? I don't think anyone can begrudge it. No. Not at this stage, not when she's getting like, yeah, no, she's literally, she literally knows better than anyone else yeah. in the UK. <laughs> so maybe, you know, let, let, her, let her have this one. It's cool. As time progressed, Mary's confidence in her knowledge grew. And in 1839, she wrote to the magazine of Natural History to question a claim made in an article. The article said that a recently discovered fossil of the prehistoric shark, Hybridus, represented a new genus. She said that this was an error since she had discovered the existence of fossil sharks with both straight and hooked teeth many years before. So she's correcting the Natural History magazine. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that, is, that is the 19th century equivalent of talk shit. Yeah. I like it. It's like, oh, this, this thing clearly exists. It's like, uh, no, I've got the evidence. Found it years ago. Shut up. Yeah. Oh, no, no. I, I stand corrected. It's the 19th century version of when... Um, you know, where, you know, women report saying like, oh, well, I was standing the thing, we're in a t-shirt for, say, you know, Wonder Woman or whatever. And a guy comes up and says, oh, I bet you don't even know who she is. And she's like, yeah, I write for the comic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, a, a guy tries to mansplain on Twitter to someone being like, oh, well, that's not actually how it works. And it's just like, I have a PhD in it. So yeah. maybe I, I do. I, I, I follow Gail Simone on Twitter and she said that oh, someone she's... tried to ah. explain Deadpool to her. And she's like, <laughs> Dude, I'm credited in the movie. Shut up. <laughs> oh, God, I love Gail Simone. She's yeah. fab. <laughs> the extract from this letter that the magazine printed is the only writing that Mary published in the sci in scientific literature during her lifetime because women weren't allowed to. Oh, okay. I mean, yeah, no, it's just it's just awful, isn't it? Oh. Well. Well, at least it's changed that women aren't at all oppressed for... Oh. <laughs> I mean, I know I'm making a joke out of it, but then it's also just like a genuine nut of... Oh. oh <sighs> As a woman, Mary was an outsider in the scientific community. At the time in Britain, women were not allowed to vote, hold public office, or attend university. Oh, fuck that. Sorry, continue. The newly formed but increasingly influential Geological Society of London did not allow women to become members or even attend meetings as guests. Although Mary knew more about fossils and geology than many of the wealthy fossilists whom she sold it to, it was always the gentleman geologists who published the scientific descriptions of the specimens she found, and often neglecting to mention her name. Ah. Oh. So, taking credit for her discoveries. Good old men. Yep. Men! We're still trash. Mary, unsurprisingly, became resentful of this. Anna Pinney, a young woman who sometimes accompanied Mary while she collected fossils, wrote, She says the world has used her ill. These men of learning have sucked her brains and made a great deal of publishing works of which she furnished the contents, while she derived none of the advantages. Mary's experiences were a part of a larger pattern of ignoring the contributions of working-class people in the early 19th century scientific literature. Fossils would often be found by quarrymen, construction workers or road workers who would sell it to wealthy collectors. It was them who were later credited in the find of scientific interest. So, rich white people screwing everyone over. 
Oh. Glad to see times have changed. <laughs> oh, I'm glad. Do you know what? I'm really glad it was an isolated incident. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine what it'd been like <laughs> if rich, straight white people had been enforcing this code for years? Oh. <laughs> oh. Along with purchasing specimens, many geologists visited her to collect fossils or discuss anatomy and classification. Henry de la Beck and Mary became friends as teenagers following his move to Lyme, and he and Mary, and sometimes Mary's brother Joseph, went fossil hunting together quite often. Delebeck and Mary kept in touch as he became one of British, one of Britain's leading geologists. William Buckland, who lectured in geology at the University of Oxford, often visited Lyme on his Christmas holidays and was frequently seen hunting for fossils with Mary. It was to him she made what would prove to be the scientifically important suggestion that the strange conical objects known as bizarre stones were really the fossilised faeces of ichthyosaurs or plesiosaurs. Ah, like in Harry Potter. They use um, bizarre stones as like, oh, you've got to put one in the mouth or put one in the thing. And I'm just like, ah, so it's ichthyosaurus shit. Yeah, it's dino poop. Dino poop. Buckland would go on to name the objects coprolites. And in 1839, Buckland, Connie Bear and Richard Owen visited Lyme together so that Mary could lead them all on fossil-collecting excursions. Mary also assisted Thomas Hawkins with his effort to collect ichthyosaur fossils at Lyme in the 1830s. She was aware that he liked to enhance fossils he collected. She wrote, He is such an enthusiast that he makes things as he imagines them ought to be, and not as they really are. A few years later, there was a public scandal when it was discovered that Hawkins had inserted fake bones to make some of the ichthyosaur skeletons seem more complete. He later sold these to the British Museum collection without the appraisers knowing about the additions. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah. Choices. Bit of a swindler. <laughs> <laughs> the Swiss paleontologist Louis Agassiz visited Lyme Regis in 1834 and worked with Mary to obtain and study fish fossils found in the region. He was so impressed by her and her friend Elizabeth Philpott that he wrote in his journal, Miss Philpott and Mary Anning have been able to show me with utter certainty which are the ichthyoduralites, dorsal fins of sharks, that correspond to different types. He went on to publicly thank both of them for their help in his book, Studies of Fossil Fish. Another leading British geologist, Roderick Murchison, did some of his first field work in southwest England, which included Lyme, accompanied by his wife, Charlotte. Murchison wrote that they decided Charlotte should stay behind in Lyme for a few weeks to become a good practical fossilist by working with the celebrated Mary Anning. Charlotte and Mary became lifelong friends and correspondents. Charlotte, who travelled widely and met with many prominent geologists through her work with her husband, helped Mary build her network of customers throughout Europe, and Mary stayed with them whenever she visited London. This isn't appropriate. I immediately thought, oh my god, are they gay? They're not. <laughs> There's no proof. But immediately no. they were like, oh, these two women train and become life... And I just thought, oh, make it gay. Were you thinking this was going to go into a lesbian love story? I kind of thought it was going to become one of those super unrequited, you know, kind of... Um, <laughs> yeah... I don't know why. We're recording this fairly later. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, do you know what this needs? Make it gay. You know, we've had it before with stories. It's just like, it's already quite gay. Make it gayer. <laughs> Even gayer. No, anyway. So, yeah, cool. That's good. Mary's many correspondents included Charles Lyle, who wrote to her to ask for her opinion on how the sea was affecting the coastal cliffs around Lyme 
as well as Adam Sedgwick, who taught geology at the University of Cambridge, who numbered Charles Darwin among his students. So she's helping the guy who would go on to teach Darwin. That's kind of awesome. That is, yeah. If it wasn't for her, would Darwin have had that information fed down to him? Um, Probably not, and then that would have kind of informed his but that yeah and then it's we're thinking about it, kind of like how many ways that your life and other people's lives touch yours so like oh cool mm. you know this thing that you learn or this thing that you did it would be impossible without this person deciding this or this person deciding that and not having a you know impact so it's a it's a nice way of kind of talking about how other people's lives can affect each other without even knowing about it because when she sold the thing to this Professor What's-His-Name, who taught at Cambridge, she didn't know that he would go on to be, that he had Charles Darwin in his class. Mm. She had no idea. So, yeah, that's cool. You never know. By 1830, because of difficult economic conditions in Britain that reduced the demand for fossils, coupled with long gaps in major fines, Mary was once again in financial difficulties. Her friend, the geologist Henry Delabec, assisted her by commissioning George Schaff to make a lithograph print based on Delebeck's watercolour painting Duria Antwicor, portraying life in prehistoric Dorset that was largely based on fossils Mary had found. Delebeck sold copies of the print to his fellow geologists and other wealthy friends and donated the proceeds to Mary. Okay, good friend. Yeah, he didn't have to do that, but he's supporting his mate. I like that. You know, more platonic male-female friendships. This is what I like to hear mm-hmm. about. Because you know, you know, you know, if they ever made a Hollywood version, it would be like, oh, he was in love with her yeah. his whole life. And I'm like, no, maybe they're just friends and it's fine. <laughs> don't make it weird. That's the thing. It's like, I don't know if Mary had any interest in relationships because we're quite far into her life and there has been nothing. It's mm. just her work. Well, maybe she just, you know. Maybe she was what the, I think they used to call them blue stockings in the 20th century, which is someone who's, you know, doesn't care much about kind of relationships or anything like that. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, maybe she was asexual, maybe she was aromantic, maybe she just liked work more than anything else. Maybe that was, maybe, maybe she was romantic, but she was romantic about kind of fossils and all that kind of thing. I just like that she's, she doesn't even have that, you know, goes home to her husband at the end of the day kind of thing it's like no she's she's doing this all yeah. herself it's well, all I'm gonna, her i'm gonna say so she she bought her own house and her own shop and everything and it's like cool yeah um and that's not in the fact that it ha- or at least it hasn't yet mentioned any kind of like oh well if she doesn't marry off she's gonna do she's never gonna be able to do x y and z it's like no she's just out there doing her own shit and mm-hmm. doing it really well and in fact being the best in the uk even though she is getting completely unfairly represented and people are taking credit for her work and all that kind of shit but she's still doing it so power to her it's cool and it's very different to like elizabeth fry who did have mm. a husband and her work was very much entirely and just it, it was very different but they both yeah. went out and did what they wanted to do which is awesome mm. Yeah, which is why I thought you'd like her because of that. Yeah, exactly. You know, as long as you're doing what you want to do and you're making some kind of positive impact, because I don't want it to be like, do you know who we're going to do? Myra Hindley. Why? Because she did out what she wanted to do. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, ah, no. yeah, yeah. Technically, she does tick those boxes. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. That's why I'm like, third criteria. Um, 
putting some good out into the world. And that kind of goes, bye-bye, Myra. And just <laughs> shuffles her off. But yeah, women going out there and kind of, of the time, doing what they want and kind of making a positive impact on the world and kind of the information, the awareness shared. So that's awesome. In December 1830, Mary finally made another major find, a skeleton of a new type of plesiosaur, which she sold for £200, the equivalent of 9300 Okay. Yeah, that's a good way to get back on your feet. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty good. It was around this time that she switched from attending the local congregational church, where she had been baptised and in which she and her family had always been active members, to the Anglican church. The change was prompted in part by a decline in congregational attendance that began in 1828 when its popular pastor, John Gleed, a fellow fossil collector, left for the United States to campaign against slavery. He was replaced by a less likeable Ebenezer Smith. The greater social respectability of the established church in which some of Mary's gentleman geologist customers were ordained clergy was also a factor in this decision. Mary, who was devoutly religious, actively supported her new church as she did her old. Yeah. I mean, that is quite cool that she was able to kind of marry her scientific beliefs and kind of practices and regimen and all that sort of thing with mm. having a pretty strong faith. I respect that. That's pretty cool. She suffered another serious financial setback in 1835 when she lost most of her life savings in a bad investment. I... So I found conflicting things about this. Some were saying that she was basically conned, um, but other people were saying that it was a legit investment, but the person she invested in died, and so like the whole thing fell apart and she was left with nothing. I mean, that's the ultimate con. I went and died on you. <laughs> yeah. We'll see you get your money now. So I'm not sure which one it is, but yeah, she's, she's left with all of her savings wiped out. Oh, fair enough. I mean, it's awful, but okay. Concerned about her financial situation, her old friend William Buckland persuaded the British Association for the Advancement of Science and the British government to award her with an annu to award her an annuity known as a civil list pension in return for her many contributions to the science of geology, and she was given annual pension of twenty five pounds, which at the time was very unusual for well, women, I say very unusual. Women just didn't get that, so yeah. She was the first first to receive anything like that. Oh god, what have I done? I've turned all my text red. <laughs> okay, it's it's back to normal. <laughs> You've gotta leave that in. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, gonna have to. <laughs> really serious, really serious. Oh fuck. It's it's the spirit of Mary Anne. <laughs> oh bless her. On the 9th of March, eighteen forty seven, at the age of forty seven. Mary died from breast cancer. Oh no. Her work had tailed off during the last few years of her life because of her illness, and as some of the townspeople misinterpreted the effects of increasing doses of laudanum she was taking for the pain, as such there were many rumours that Mary had a drinking problem. Despite these rumours, the regard in which she was held by the geological community was shown in 1846, where, upon learning of her cancer diagnosis, the Geological Society raised money from its members to help with her expenses, and the council of the newly created Dorset County Museum made her an honorary member. Ah, that's nice. The the community's rallying for her. Oh, bless. Mary was buried on the 15th of March in a churchyard 
of St. Michael's in the local parish church. Members of the Geological Society contributed to a stained glass window in her memory, unveiled in 1850. It depicts the six corporal acts of mercy, feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, clothing the naked, sheltering the homeless, and visiting the prisoners and the sick. The inscription on the window reads, This window is sacred to the memory of Mary Anning of this parish, who died on the 9th of March, AD 1847, and is erected by the vicar and some members of the Geological Society of London in commemoration of her usefulness in furthering the science of geology, as also of her benevolence of heart and integrity of life. The window still exists to this day. Aww. After her death, Henry Delabec, president of the Geological Society, wrote a eulogy that he read to the, a meeting of the society and published in its quarterly transaction, the first given for a woman. These were honours normally only accorded to fellows of the society, which did not admit women until 1904. The eulogy read in part, I cannot close this notice of our losses by death without averting to that of one, who though not placed among even the easier classes of society, but one who had earned her daily bread by her labour, yet contributed by her talents and untiring researches in no small degree to our knowledge of the great Enaliosaurians and other forms of organic life entombed in the vicinity of Lyme Regis. Charles Dickens wrote an article about her life in 1865 in his literary magazine All the Year Round. It emphasised the difficulties she had overcome, especially the scepticism of her fellow townspeople. He ended the article with, The carpenter's daughter has won a name for herself, and it has deserved to win it. Ah, and it all comes full circle. Yep. Oh. Charles Dickens, that's a that's a hell of an accolade to have him write something about you. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Mary's discoveries became key pieces of evidence for the theory of extinction. George Cuvier had argued for the reality of extinction in the late 1790s based on his analysis of fossil animals, such as mammoths. Nevertheless, until the early 1820s, it was still believed by many scientifically literate people that just, if, just as new species did not appear, so existing ones did not become extinct, in part because they felt that extinction would imply God's creations had been imperfect. The bizarre nature of the fossils found by Mary, such as the plesiosaur, which was so unlike any known living creature, struck a major blow against this idea. The ichthyosaurs, plesiosaurs and pterosaurs she found, along with the first dinosaur fossils which were discovered by Gideon Mantell and William Buckland during the same period, showed that during previous eras the Earth was inhabited by creatures very different from those living today, and provided important support for other controversial suggestions, that there had been an age of reptiles, when reptiles rather than mammals had been the dominant form of life. These discoveries also played a key role in the development of a new discipline of geohistorical analysis with, within geology in the 1820s that sought to understand the history of Earth by using evidence from fossils. This discipline eventually came to be called paleontology. So she invented paleontology. Yeah. <laughs> I just, yeah and I, I, you've I, never I, heard of her, have you? <laughs> no. I mean, to be fair, I was nodding in press and then realised you can't see it. <laughs> I thought I was like, ah, this is not a face-to-face -face conversation. Um, yeah, that's so cool. I yeah. mean, it's like the whole thing where it's like, you know, women invented all of your favourite things. Like, you know, um, Mary Shelley created horror and mm -hmm. 
Oh my god, what's her name? She wrote... So it's Margaret Cavendish's The Blazing World. Okay, I've which... never heard of them. Huh, yes. So uh, it was done, it was, she was, it was written in 1666, and it's basically about a utopian world, and there's an empress in charge, and all that sort of thing. But it's the mm. first recorded example of science fiction. So mm. technically, she is the mother of sci-fi, and, you know, Mary Shelley created kind of arguably modern horror, um, mm-hmm. And now, you know, Mary Anning created paleontology. And I know there's going to be like, oh, well, actually, the first university in the world was founded by um, female scholars. So that's awesome, too. So uh, without Mary, no Jurassic Park. Yes, exactly. That's, that's the message to take away. If Mary Anning hadn't been as awesome, um, Jurassic Park would have been either not existed or not been as good. This next bit might blow you away as well because, well, it's just insane. Throughout the 20th century, century a number of writers saw mary's life as inspirational it is even claimed that she was the basis of terry sullivan's lyrics to a 1908 song which would become the popular tongue twister she sells seashells no yeah oh my god that's so cool now let's see if i can actually do this she sells seashells on the seashore. The shells she sells are seashells, I'm sure. So if she sells seashells on the seashore, then I'm sure she sells seashells shells. No, I got that wrong <laughs> at the end. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm going to have a go. All right. Because <laughs> I've just brought it up because I'm like, I don't believe this. She sells seashells on the seashore. The se- the shells she sells are seashells, I'm sure. So if she sells seashells on the seashore, then I'm sure she sells seashore shells. Oh, I hate that. Oh, that's awful. Well, you can you can thank Mary for that one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Mate, thanks for having an aw- awesome life, and that is the coolest tidbit. That yeah. that is like pub quiz trivia. <laughs> oh my god. Ooh. She was also referenced in several historical novels, including The French Lieutenant's Woman in 1969 by John Fole, who was critical of the fact that no British scientist had named a specimen after her in her lifetime. True. Yeah. The only person who did name a specimen specimen after her during her lifetime was the Swiss-American naturalist Louis Agues, who visited her shop. In the early 1840s, he named two fossil fish species after her and another after her friend, Elizabeth Philpot. Nice. He was grateful for the help the women had given him in examining the fish, the fossil fish specimens during his visit in 1834. Oh, see, not all guys are horrible. After her death, other species, um, I'm not even going to try and pronounce them, <laughs> were named in her honour. In 2012, a new plesiosaur genus was named after her, and a species of ichthyosaur was named after her in 2015. Aww. And in 1999, on the 200th anniversary of her birth, an international meeting of historians, paleontologists, fossil collectors, and other in- and others interested in Mary's life was held in Lyme Regis. In 2005, the Natural History Museum added her, along with scientists such as Carl Linnaeus, Dorothea Bate and William Smith as one of the gallery characters to be used in display cases. And in March 2010, as part of a celebration of its 350th anniversary, the Royal Society invited a panel of experts to produce a list of the 10 British women who had most influenced the history of science, which included Mary. That's awesome. And that's Mary Anning, the kick-ass woman who helped invent paleontology and 
proved extinction existed and kicked the ass of any man scientifically. <laughs> that is awesome. That is... Oh, Mary. Yeah. I, I, I finished this research and then I sort of sat back and went, I think I've fallen in love with Mary a little yeah. bit. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. Oh. And it's weird because, it, again, only sort of related, but my a lot of my friends are now having children, so I'm becoming like an honorary mm. uncle a few times. Um, and so I'm really pushing on more women in STEM because mm. it's it's such a big thing at the moment trying to kind of close the gap a bit in STEM, um, all that sort of thing. And so it's stuff like this. It's like Mary Annie and Marie Curie and all these fantastic female scientists who've got no representation during our life. And you're just like, oh, it's 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 both good and bad because it's a bad thing that they didn't get representation, but it's good that we're at least talking about it. And that yeah. we're able to kind of give them the exposure now, kind of retroactively or pos- posthumously. Comparing those two, how many people have heard of Marie Curie? So many. Yeah. But how many people have heard of Mary Anning? Or if they've heard of her, can remember, oh yeah, she did that, didn't she? Yeah. But then did Marie Curie only get remembered because of her husband working alongside her? Yeah. You know, I'm or, not saying what how, she did wasn't she, good in itself, but yeah. yeah. You know, well, she, she's worthy of being remembered without her husband. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if that played a part in why she's more well-known than Mary. Yeah, well, potentially. I mean, I don't know if the relationship thing necessarily works because, ne- well, I mean, to be fair, I say everyone knows Elizabeth Fry. We don't, and it's still really not talked about, but I'm more conscious of it now, and yet she was married. Look at Oprah. Look at Oprah. She's married. No one ever talks about her husband, but she is married. And it's like, well, I mean, it's a different world and all that sort of thing. But I just, it's a real shame that more people don't know about Mary Annie, myself included. I didn't know who on earth she was. But it's like, it's such a cool piece of history. And the fact that this one person kind of rippled out and have such massive effects later down the line. And she, she she was one of 10. So it was only really a bit of fate and everything. Um, and I'm just, I'm kind of laughing to myself because we've been talking about kind of the religious aspect and the fact she was able to keep religion and everything. I just love the idea that God realized that she'd be instrumental in kind of getting rid of <laughs> creationists and that's why he tried to kill her with that lightning bolt and he just missed. <laughs> and she just went, it was like that internet meme where a guy sent his stepdaughter a photo of him after surgery saying, guess it's like, I lived, bitch. <laughs> just that, just heard a god saying, or like the uh, American Horror Story, when it's like, surprise, bitch, but you thought you'd seen the last of me. <laughs> Which I like to think of is that she was a paleontologist and kind of enemy of God. No, that's me. That's mean. She was super religious. <laughs> she yeah. pushed for scientific understanding and managed to do it while retaining mm-hmm. her faith, which is very admirable. And I think that's yeah, very she. She was able to look at the world and go, you know, I, I believe in God, I'm religious, but we don't have the answers to everything. There's more to God's creation that we don't yet understand, and science can help us do that. And she was able to marry those two together. And yeah, I, I, I know that in the end, I, I listed, you know, her and these other people, their research would go on to found paleontology. But the fact that she was supplying so many of these people with fossils that got them recognition is like were these other people really instrumental or was it all her yeah exactly her her legacy in a way is kind of providing it for other people you know it's a bit like the teachers who inspire other people 
that's their legacy and the fact they were able to teach and inspire someone else to go out in the field and do something that they hadn't done before. And, you know, that's awesome. In a way, she inspired Charles Dickens. And that's why I thought that little... Um, not Charles Dickens, it was Charles Darwin. Yeah, that's where I got confused. I was like, oh, it's all come full circle. I'm like, nope, because there were two Charles D and you just forgot what it was. But it's like, you know, she went on and, in a way, helped Charles Darwin become one of the, mo- the most prominent kind of evolutionist or evolutionist in, you know, the modern world. And yeah, it's just, it's it's very nice. And I'm definitely going to be, again, with the Elizabeth Fry one, I'm basically making like a little list of like, cool, this has really piqued my interest. So I'm definitely going to like try this out. But yeah, no, this was awesome. Good. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I The more I started reading about her, I was like, this just makes me think of Elizabeth Fry. And yeah, she's amazing. And I'm pretty sure Chris is gonna <laughs> get a dig out of this one. I'm yeah. I was I was very happy to be getting this one. There's less I mean, I joke and say child murders, but actually more kids died in this one than any for a yeah, while. Technically so. more children died in this one than the axe yeah. murder episode. <laughs> yeah. Think about that. You get to have the best of both worlds, listener. You get to have more <laughs> infant death and more uplifting scientific discovery and badass women, so Depending on when this comes out, enjoy your winter holiday present. I was going to say Christmas, but a lot of people don't celebrate Christmas. We'll be coming out literally Christmas Eve. <gasps> oh, yay! Because <laughs> <laughs> it is literally a Christmas present. Nice. That is awesome. Well, if if people enjoyed this as much as we did, where can they find you online and in other podcasts so they can get more of you in their ears? Hmm. When I'm not busy getting struck by lightning and becoming an infinitely better person, you can find me on Twitter. <laughs> at higher underscore boy um i am not that funny nor am i that entertaining i basically talk about stuff i like and basically kind of big up my friends and their other shows um but who knows it's it's free go for it this is the worst twitter pitch um i am a co-host on a couple of other shows uh one is not by nerd west which is me and emma platt and we get on and chat about all kinds of nerdy stuff we haven't done an episode in a little while just because we've both been insanely busy over the summer but we have we are hoping to get some episodes in uh, in time for the new year. Um, I also do a show called Good Evening, an Alfred Hitchcock podcast with two of my Canadian brothers. That is Brandon Shea Matala and Tom Caldwell, who both of you, along with Emma, who you can find on Twitter. Um, and it's basically an Alfred Hitchcock review podcast that goes chronologically through his movies, and we discuss it. And we're also doing kind of offshoots like Bits Motel and the Psycho sequels and bits and pieces all over, and it's awesome. Uh, we have just done... Oh, we have just got into The Man Who Knew Too Much, the 34 version, and it is one of my favourite ever films. So it's basically an hour and a half of me just kind of making incoherent sounds of pleasure. <laughs> um, and then we have a special, funny enough you say this, but we have a uh, special Christmas episode uh, coming up. So <laughs> if if like you don't get on with your family at Christmas or you just need a break, <laughs> make sure you download our episode because it is really funny. And I tried to wear a hat throughout the whole thing until I realised my earbuds won't fit. <laughs> I tried wearing like my big cover headphones and a hat, and I realised this doesn't actually work. So the hat's there in spirit. So please, please enjoy. <laughs> um, I also pop up on other shows like uh, there is 
Oh god, there's a fringe one coming out in January, which I believe is called Following the Pattern, um, which covers episodes of the TV show Fringe, and I'm on a couple of episodes of that. And uh, Smorgasbord, um, I was on a couple of months ago, and hopefully I'll be on it again very, very soon. Awesome. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to you guys getting to the Psycho sequels, because I really enjoyed them. <gasps> I've never I see I've genuinely never seen them so I'll be going into this kind of completely blind. So I will I, I went into the whole thing completely blind. I, it was only a few years ago but I'd never even seen Psycho. And then I sat and did all the films and it's like for for what should normally be like you expect it's a franchise movie it's going to be a bad sequel. Each of them is really well made and they put a lot of thought and effort into how do we like make this a a good film, be a continuation of the other films and also completely different from each other so that for like a horror franchise psycho is so interesting and so good Ooh. but yeah I, I really hope you enjoy them <laughs> i mean i'm more intrigued now because i've heard kind of more mixed reception but i'm i'm totally down like i said there's still a lot of hitchcock i haven't seen and this is a way of me really you know we've explored a lot of the early ones which you know if you're if you're still listening to this listener they're crap like we we listen to them so you don't have to watch them uh we no we watch them so you don't have to um but yeah no they're um they're interesting and if nothing else they provide kind of an interesting insight into someone who um uh, how can i put it was a very specific kind of crazy um and very talented definitely one of our great kind of authors of cinema but who was also kind of a very um a little bit messed up a little bit unusual a bit of a uh the kindest way to say it would be eccentric one of our most eccentric prolific uh filmmakers so yeah i have a lot of fun um with that and it also means i get to kind of explore canadian culture because every so often they'll drop a reference and i'm like i don't know what that means <laughs> like okay do you know what a butter tart is i'm guessing from the fact it has tart in the name it's it's some sort of food and not you know yeah a, a buttered up lady looking for fun it's it's not like a dodgy internet ad no um <laughs> they were like oh you've never heard about the title i went no what is it and it's basically again just before we wrap up the episode just so you know um it's a a tart like a like a jam tart but it's filled with like an egg custard okay and they just eat and then they um put i think they put sugar on it and then you like caramelize it a bit and i'm like i'm that sounds very weird but also quite intriguing <laughs> So if I'm I've, pretty if I've, sure I've seen similar in in bakeries here in the UK, but they're definitely not called butter tarts. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird. It's like it's almost a bit like an egg custard kind of thing. Mm. Anyway, um, but that just basically means I'm going to have to go to Canada one day, partially to meet up with them, also <laughs> just go around going like, "What's this? What's this?" Trying all that out. Sounds like a good plan to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, if people enjoyed this episode, we're online as well. Uh, we have a Twitter account, which is at eccentric underscore earth. Our Instagram has the same handle. We have a Facebook page, which is www.facebook.com forward slash eccentric earth. If you want to write in with any suggestions for future episodes or to give us any feedback or to suggest some nice Canadian treats for Chris, our email address is <laughs> eccentricearth at outlook.com. We're on all major podcast providers and YouTube, so make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any more episodes. And if you like us, or even if you dislike us, please leave us a review. Some feedback is always welcome, as it helps us find new listeners. And we're also now part of the Brit Podscene Network, which has dozens of amazing British podcasts on it, so go check them out and see if you can find some great new shows to listen to. Well, I think uh, I think that about 
wraps up the episode thank you for for coming on chris it's been a, a real pleasure yeah no thank you for having me i know this was a little bit last minute but it was like yeah i've really i've really enjoyed this and thank you for not giving me something that will haunt my nightmares <laughs> good i'm glad it's a pleasant change for you <laughs> <laughs> i'm just like oh thank you for the gift of sleep amy thank you because <laughs> otherwise I'll, I'll still be there at three in the morning just like is that a creek or is that an axe murderer in the house <laughs> or is it the mothman it, i was gonna say it's mothman coming to get you with an axe <laughs> yep there goes the sleep right i've ruined you again haven't i <laughs> I don't think there's anything left to say, really. Right. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening, and uh, sleep well, Chris. <laughs> this has been Eccentric Earth, sponsored by My Nightmares. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>